We have been in a series for the past couple of weeks where we've been talking about different songs, and we have uh, kind of re, uh, redone the way that we have organized our worship services, because normally from week to week, uh, John, Mark, and I come up with a, a sermon, a sermon topic, something that we want to preach on, and then we send whatever that topic is and whatever text we're going to preach from and some of our sermon notes to our worship leaders. Well, we decided that we wanted to kind of flip the script, and we wanted to do things a little bit differently for the, a couple of weeks here. And so what we've done is we have asked, uh, actually asked our song leaders to help direct our service, to help us uh, formulate what the entire service is going to be about. And so for the past couple of weeks, we have been starting with the song service and developing our entire uh, sermon and the entire service based on whatever the songs that we're going to sing that day are. And so uh, two weeks ago, we spent some time focusing on the song Amazing Grace, uh, a beautiful song, a song that has so much meaning uh, in, in, our, in our world and especially in the United States. And so we spent some time reflecting on that. And then last week, we spent time talking about the song Beautiful Things, a uh, beautiful song that was written uh, just a couple of years ago by Michael Gunger. And so we spent some time reflecting on that. And this week, we're going to be spending some time talking about the song, The Old Rugged Cross. But before we get there, uh, I want to say a couple things uh, about our worship, uh, about how we worship, about why we worship. Because we, we've made the case that our worship, perhaps more than anything else that we do uh, over a period of time, defines our spirituality more than anything else that we do. Uh, and of course, when we gather together for worship services like we are right now, today, we hope that the sermon is engaging. We hope that the time that we spend together is meaningful. Uh, we definitely want to spend a lot of time focusing our, uh, our time on communion. And so uh, every week we take communion together because this is so foundational to who we are. But over the course of time, chances are that our worship actually does more to develop our spirituality and how we think and talk about God than anything else that we do. And so we wanted to spend some time uh, over these couple of weeks uh, really focusing and, in, and, and narrowing down what is it that we believe? What do we want to talk about when we sing? What do we want to sing about? What do we want to worship? How do we want to worship? And so this, uh, this week, we're, we're focusing on the cross. And the cross is something that is so important and so foundational to us. And so we're going to spend some time really thinking about it. Uh, how is it that we talk about the cross? How is it that we sing about the cross? And especially when we come to this song, the old rugged cross, a, a hymn that many of us uh, have grown up with uh, our entire lives. How does this song help us to understand something about God? Because that's something that our worship helps us to do. It helps us to speak about God. It helps give language to what we believe about God and what we know about God. But when we come to uh, a time like this, when we are going to, to narrow down and focus in on what we believe, what we think uh, this story, the Christian story, is all about, it's important for us when we talk about the cross to remember that our worship communicates something that our hearts believe and something that our hearts know to be true. And so with our words, with our song, we are communicating something that is, is beyond just word. It's beyond just thought. It's something that we hold true in our hearts. The gospel story centers upon the cross. The gospel story focuses in on this time. Uh, the gospels spend an extraordinary amount of time describing and talking about the final week of the life of Jesus before the crucifixion. They spend an extraordinary amount of time talking about this, and so we want to talk about that today as well. But before we really dive into this song, before we really dive into what the cross means for us, I want to ask you uh, as, as the audience, as the congregation today, to do a, a little bit of participation with me. And it's not going to be too hard, uh, I promise. Uh, it only involves standing up and sitting down. So if you would uh, help me out here, uh, I would greatly appreciate it. So what I want to ask you to do is today, if you are wearing any sort of jewelry, 
anything. It could be a wedding ring, it could be earrings, it could be uh, a nose ring, I don't care what it is. Any kind of jewelry, uh, I'm gonna ask you to please stand up right now. Okay, quite a few of us. Uh, look around the room, see, there's a lot of people wearing jewelry today. Now, I'm not gonna ask you yet uh, what kind of jewelry you're wearing, uh, but here's what I want you to do. If you are not wearing religious jewelry, I want you to go ahead and have a seat. So let me define what I mean by religious jewelry. Uh, if your uh, jewelry has a cross on it, uh, or if it is like a fish, uh, or for some reason if you are wearing a, a necklace that has all 12 disciples on it, uh, something like that, uh, so if you're not wearing something religious, uh, sit, sit down. Okay, so we still got a pretty good uh, number of folks. Look around, see how many we've got. Uh, okay, let me, let, me, let me ask some questions. Trey, uh, what is on your jewelry that's religious? It's a cross necklace. Okay, perfect. Thank you, thank you. Uh, uh, Terry, in the back, what, what, what do you got? Okay, an image of the Virgin Mary. Yes, perfect. Uh, okay, what else? Uh, I'm going to pick on you, Josh. What do you got? A cross necklace. Okay, so here's what I, we've got two out of three so far. If you're wearing a cross on any of your jewelry, stay standing and everybody else sit down. Okay, not very many people sat down. Uh, interesting. So everybody who's still standing in some kind of jewelry is wearing a cross. Is that correct? Okay, thank you. You guys can all have a seat. Thank you so much for helping with that. Uh, here's my question for us. Uh, how many of us in this room, besides wearing a cross, are wearing some other uh, emblem of a device of torture this morning? <laughs> Is anybody? If, if you are, would you please stand up? If you have a guillotine on your necklace, would you please stand up? Uh, any electric chairs? Oh, hang on. Uh, we got Chris. Chris, what are you wearing? Chains. Yes. Okay. Chains. Bondage. Yes. Okay. Uh, so not very many people. Thanks, Chris. You can go ahead and sit down. Not very many of us are wearing something uh, that uh, is an emblem of torture or, or something that describes pain and difficulty. But did you notice how many of us are wearing crosses today? Kind of an interesting idea. And I want to talk about that a little bit as we continue on in our time because when the Romans devised this symbol, the cross, the cross had power. There was power behind the cross. And we know this is true. We, we understand this about the cross because the cross was a symbol of Rome. It was a symbol of Rome's power. And so when people saw the cross, what they equated that cross with was Rome's power, was the, the office of Caesar, someone who had the ability to have authority over you. When, when the Romans used the cross, they used this cross as a means of reminding the people who they were and who they weren't. And so the cross became a symbol for the Romans. It became a symbol that they used to show the people in the Roman Empire who was in charge, who was in control. And anytime somebody saw a cross, what they began to learn and began to understand was that Rome was expressing their power. They were expressing that they had power over your body, that they had power over your life. And so when, when somebody would, would be crucified, it would be an example to the rest of the empire to remind them that Rome is in charge. And if you mess with Rome, they mess back. And they take your life. And they take your body. I mean, think, think about the act of crucifixion. Think about just Jesus' crucifixion. When Jesus is crucified, he goes to the cross and he dies. But that's not all that happens there. Think about the whole journey. 
because Jesus is arrested. And once he's arrested, he's beaten. Several times he's beaten uh, during his imprisonment. He goes back and forth between Pilate and the Jewish leaders, and, and, and depending on who it is, they, they might tell him different things, and they might send him back to prison or, or to a different uh, tribunal or council to, for him to uh, have to give his defense. And, and notice in, in Matthew 27, uh, and if you want to turn over there, you can, but uh, Matthew 27, Pilate is questioning Jesus. And in Matthew 27, Pilate asks Jesus, who are you? Because Pilate has heard rumor that this is the king of the Jews. But the problem with that is that there is already a different king of the Jews, Herod. And, and Herod has been given that title by Caesar. And so if Jesus is claiming the title of king of the Jews, it means that he is directly contradicting Caesar. Caesar's the one who has the authority, who has the control, who has the power, who can give that title to someone. And so when Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus is careful to answer that question. He says, that's who you say that I am. And of course, after this, Jesus's trial, his, uh, his imprisonment continues. And when he goes to the cross, he's paraded through the entire town of Jerusalem. Uh, first, he's stripped naked so that he'll be humiliated, ashamed, and he's uh, led through procession through the town. And of course, he's also carrying the own, his own instrument of death. He's carrying his cross. When the Romans would use the cross, they would do this to totally annihilate any thought that anyone had to overturning the power of Rome because Rome's power was absolute. It needed to be. Caesar's power was absolute. And so they paraded Jesus naked, humiliated through the town, tiring him until finally they got to Golgotha. And there they nailed him to the cross and allowed him to die. But of course, his death took hours. Because when you're crucified, uh, it's not blood loss that you die from. It's, it's not extreme pain. You suffocate. Very literally, Rome was knocking the wind out of any revolution that could come against her. When the cross was, was raised and you were hung on it, they were making sure that everybody knew. They put you in a public place. They paraded you through town because they wanted you to know. They wanted the town to know that if you think that you can overturn the authority, the power, in the control of Caesar or Rome, you're wrong. Because Rome controls your body. Rome will kill you if you try. And so today, a handful of us are wearing the symbol of the cross. Probably most of us as necklaces or um, perhaps something like that. Uh, and this is just jewelry. We could have done this in any number of ways. I could have asked you if anybody has a picture on their phone of the cross if anybody has a tattoo of the cross, if anybody has a t-shirt of the cross. But here's what I believe to be true. The jewelry that you're wearing with a cross on it, the t-shirt that has the cross on it, the pictures on the screen behind me with the cross on it, those are not the Roman cross. They are the cross of Jesus. Because something happened when Jesus went to the cross, didn't it? The, the whole story that Rome has been trying to tell is suddenly undone when Jesus goes to the cross. When Jesus is on the cross, the Roman powers, the Roman authority and control, Caesar himself, are put on notice that their time is at an end and something different is coming. And so the, the crosses that we wear as jewelry, as t-shirts, that we have as backgrounds on our cell phones, are not the Roman cross. They are the cross of Jesus. And the cross of Jesus has a different kind of power to it. 
It tells a different kind of story. It, it doesn't tell the story that says, if you disagree with me or if you act differently than I want you to, we will take your life. Instead, the cross of Jesus says, I will give my life for someone else. I will give my life. Jesus gives his life for us. The cross of Jesus is not the Roman cross. It's a different symbol. It means something different to us today. And so when we sing the song, The Old Rugged Cross, the lyrics of that song are true because this is not the Roman cross. It's a different cross. It's the cross of Jesus. George Bernard, when he wrote this song, uh, he intentionally wrote these, these words. Uh, listen to these words. They'll be on the screen behind me. These come from all throughout the song, the different verses. He says, On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame, the emblem that Rome had devised to make sure that you knew that your body was not your own and that Rome was in charge. But now with Christ, it is different. And so he continues on. He says, Oh, the old rugged cross so despised by the world, and yet it has a wondrous attraction to me. Not many of us today are wearing a guillotine around our necks, but we are wearing a cross because it has power, and it tells the story of Jesus, and it reminds us of who he is. In verse 3, "'Twas on that old cross that Jesus suffered and died to pardon and sanctify me." What Bernard came to understand, what he came to learn, was that the cross was not a symbol of torture, at least not anymore. The cross of Jesus meant something different now. And so he wrote about this song. He said these words, I was praying for a full understanding of the cross. I had read and studied and prayed, and the Christ of the cross became more than just a symbol. It was like seeing John 3.16 leave the printed page, take form, and act out the meaning of redemption. George Bernard said when he wrote this song that the cross became a symbol of God's redemption. It became a reminder to us that Rome is not the one who are really in charge. The one who's really in charge is God. And God is doing a work to redeem this world. God is doing a work to pardon and sanctify those who call on his name. God is working in this world, and the cross reminds us that ultimately it is not Rome who's in charge. It's God. The cross does not no longer means torture and death. Instead, now it means grace, forgiveness, and sacrifice, which, by the way, is exactly what the Apostle Paul wanted to communicate to the Corinthian church. Here in just a moment, we're going to read a couple passages from 1 Corinthians, so if you want to go ahead and turn there, you can. Uh, 1 Corinthians, uh, you'll find the first chapter uh, in the Pew Bibles in front of you, if you want to turn there, on page 1,772. And in 1 Corinthians, Paul is doing something uh, quite brilliant, I think. Uh, Paul is a really uh, brilliant evangelist, a really great uh, missionary, uh, probably the best missionary the world has ever known. And when he writes the letter to, the first, uh, to Corinthians in 1 Corinthians, his first letter to them, uh, he begins and he ends his gospel by reminding them of the story of the gospel. The first chapter deals significantly with the cross. And chapter 15, towards the end, deals significantly with the tomb. Paul is reminding them of the story of Jesus that uh, the Corinthians need to understand as they're trying to figure out how it is that they should live and, and, and uh, work together as, as a body, as, as Christians, that the cross and the tomb are bookmarks and that they remind us of what the story is all about. 
that the, the cross and the tomb give us the picture, the image of what this story really means. And so in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, I'm going to hit a couple of different verses, uh, so you're welcome to follow along in the Bible or uh, on the screen behind me. Uh, 1 Corinthians 1.18, Shane read it as we began our service. Paul writes, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are being destroyed, but it's the power of God for those who are being saved. And just like George Bernard came to understand, Paul wrote, that the cross no longer means death. Now it means salvation. It means that God is truly in control. A couple verses later, in verses 22 and continuing on, uh, Paul writes that Jews ask for signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, which is a scandal to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ is God's power and God's wisdom. This is because the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. What God is doing is more important, more powerful, bigger and better than anything we could ever devise on our own. Rome thought that the cross meant that they were in control, but God, through Christ, took it and changed its meaning, and now it means salvation to those who are in Christ. In verse 30, Paul says, it is because of God that you are in Christ Jesus. He became wisdom from God for us. This means that he made us righteous and holy. He delivered us. George Bernard said that this symbol became a symbol of redemption to him, that Christ has redeemed us and even now as we speak is redeeming us. In chapter 15 at the end of the book of 1 Corinthians, as Paul nears the end, he writes these words in verses 1 through 4. He says, brothers and sisters, I want to call your attention to the good news that I preached to you, which you also received and in which you stand. You are being saved through it if you hold on to the message that I preached to you, unless you somehow believed it for nothing. I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in line with the scriptures. He was buried and he rose on the third day in line with the scriptures. And at the end of the chapter, in verse 54, Paul writes this, Death has been swallowed up by a victory. Where is your victory, death? Where is your sting, death? For death's sting is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. As a result of all this, my loved brothers and sisters, you must stand firm, unshakable, excelling in the work of the Lord as always, because you know that your labor isn't going to be for nothing in the Lord. The cross and the tomb remind us that what God is doing in the world is bringing this world back to redemption, to restoration, to the goodness that God originally had given to it. What God is doing in each of our lives is taking the sin, the shame, the death, and reminding us that those don't have the final say. Because it's not those that are in control. It's not Rome who's in control. It's God. God is the one who is in control. God is sovereign And God's message to us is forgiveness and sacrifice, not death. And so Paul writes that our labor will not be in vain, that our work won't be for nothing. It's as if Paul wants us to remember that we are invited into the story of the cross. Jesus told us, he said, pick up your cross daily. And Paul reminds us that we can participate in the story of the cross, the story of the empty tomb, that what happened for Christ can happen in our lives, too. 
that when we participate in who God is, that when we follow God in this way, that it's not the powers of death or torture that will win the day. It's the power of Jesus. And so our labor is not in vain. When we join with Christ and we do the things that God has called us to do, our work is not in vain because it's the cross of Christ has won the victory. It has defeated death, and it no longer means what the Romans intended it to mean. Now it's a symbol of our redemption. The cross gives us life. The cross invites us into a new way of life. Ultimately, that's what the Romans intended the cross to be, a reminder that their way was the way. But when Jesus changed its meaning, it reminded us that God has offered us a new way of being and living in this world. That it's no longer according to the powers of the day. It's no longer according to sin and death. But it's the way that God has created. The way that God has invited us to participate in. Today, in just a few moments, we're going to sing another song. And today, we've included the music for that song in your bulletin. If you want, you can follow along as we do that. Uh, we're going to do something a little bit different than what we normally do. This is a song that Shane and the praise team introduced us to at Easter uh, just a couple of weeks ago, and it's a song that sings about the tomb. We've sung about the cross, and we'll continue to sing about the cross, but we want to sing about the tomb also. Easter is just a few weeks in the past, and this song reminds us powerfully that the tomb is empty, that Christ did sacrifice for us. And so uh, what we're going to do is we're going to watch and listen to this song uh, as it's played on the screen behind us. And uh, it'll give us an opportunity to to hear this song sung uh, by professional singers, uh, people who are amazing, people who are not like me. Uh, And so they're going to sing the song. And then after they sing it, after we listen to it, we're going to participate in singing it as well. And we've given you the music, hopefully as a means of helping you to to learn this song. If you don't know how to read music, you're in good company. Uh, I also don't know how to read music, but it's there uh, if you want. It's there if you want to follow along. So please, as we sing the song, remember that the cross tells a different story. The cross of Jesus reminds us that the way of the world ultimately is not the way of God. And that God's way has won a victory through the power of Christ. So let's listen to this song together. <laughs> 